that uh, Molly losing her breath is apt for this passage. This is a passage that, if you dwell deeply on it, will take your breath away. My name is Marshall. I am senior pastor. I'll be teaching on the verses that Molly just read. I do want to call your attention to one other announcement in the bulletin. This, uh, every Tuesday from noon until 1230, there's a group of us, uh, anywhere from six to ten of us, that gather for prayer. And what we start doing on the first, second Tuesday of the month is inviting the whole church to join us, uh, whether joining us by Zoom or in person. We'll meet in the West Hall uh, this Tuesday, 12 to 1230. We would love to have you. Uh, The Zoom link will be sent out again. It was also in the the, uh, uh, email that went out on Friday, um, but love to have you join us to pray together. 30 minutes, hard stop, hard stop, hard stop, hard st- you start first, and then you stop, start and stop. Uh, pray together with us by Zoom, or if you want to come in person and join us, that would, be, that would be great. Let me pray before we look at this passage. God, this is a passage that um, can take our breath away, and I pray that you would help us turn our attention to it. Uh, Those of us who are in this room, we carry a lot of things as we come into this room. We carry our fears, our anxieties. Some of us are anxious about Tuesday and what it may mean for our country, both on that day and going forward. But God, help us to see this passage, this truth, that we have been united to you in your death and resurrection. That is our new status. That is our reality. I pray that these words mysterious and difficult as they may be, would seek deeply into our hearts. Would you be with us? For your name's sake, Christ, we pray. Amen. I have been sick, so I will be drinking a little bit more this morning, drinking water and tea. (laughs) There's nothing suspicious in this cup. Yeah. Well, we have been studying the book of Romans Uh, Romans is part two of a sermon series that we've entitled Amazing Grace. Uh, Part one was the life of Jacob from Genesis in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, the life of Jacob. And we have almost every week defined grace as unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God. And that grace slowly, surely changes us. Now, we started the series with Jacob, that rascally liar and sheet. If you were not with us, just know that he was, he was kind of a bad dude. And through no goodness in him, God grabs a hold of him by grace and changes Jacob's life. It's amazing what happens over the course of many years in Jacob's life, how God, in his grace, changes Jacob. It's an evocative, powerful story. And now we are in the book of Romans in the New Testament, written by the Apostle Paul. And this is not an illustration of grace so much as it is an explanation of grace. And I want to say this morning that it is Romans that explains Jacob. We cannot understand what happens in Jacob's life fully unless we have Romans. In fact, I'll go a step further and the theologians in the room may correct me afterward, but I'll stand my ground. We actually would struggle to make sense of Jesus himself if all we had were the Gospels. The Gospels are beautiful stories. They don't always connect all the dots all the way. We need Romans to make sense of the life, the work of Jesus. Which is another way of saying we need all of God's word. We need all of God's word. And so this several months, the book of Romans. Now the first five chapters of the book of Romans are a theological tour de force. I mean, they are about the greatness of God. 
the brokenness, the sinfulness of humankind. But ultimately, they are about the triumph of God's grace in salvation for the world. God's salvation, that's what Romans 5 is about. How you become right with God. And the capstone, the capstone verse of that whole section is the last verse in that section. The verse immediately preceding today's reading, Romans 5.20 reads this. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The superabounding grace of God. That's Romans 1 to 5. Even in the face of sin. And where sin, think about this, where sin increased, grace increased even more. I mean, after all, it's unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God. So maybe, maybe we should sin as much as we can so that God gets more glory for being that much more gracious. In the words of a quote attributed to everyone from Voltaire to W.H. Auden, which means nobody knows who said it first, I like to sin, God likes to forgive, the world is admirably arranged. Well, in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul, he anticipates the argument. Look with me at verse 1, the very first verse. What shall we say then? If grace abounds over sin, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is a brilliant rhetorical move on the Apostle Paul. He knows the question that grace produces. And maybe some of you have been asking this question during this series. I mean, maybe you're a student, you're in college or high school. You're like, man... If I hear what these guys are saying, I think I can do whatever I want, right? Or maybe you're a parent and you're like, how can I kid my kids to obey, right, and become responsible adults if all they hear is unconditional acceptance and undeserving persons? I mean, if lying Jacob gets blessed, stealing lying thing Jacob gets blessed, and the good guy Esau gets overlooked, what am I to do? So Paul is anticipating the question that grace raises, and he's also turning the page and beginning to talk about Christian living, how people change, how people grow. Romans 1 to 5 is how you are made right with God. Romans 6 to 8 is the story of how we change. And we will spend from Christmas and from now until Christmas in these chapters, Romans 6 through eight. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you are here investigating, you're not sure exactly what you believe. As always, we are so glad you're here. Thank you for being here. You are always welcome. And this is a great chance, actually, for you to overhear Jesus through the Apostle Paul talking through me about ethics and Christian ethics and morality. So let me say a couple things. First, be patient with us. Uh, we are gravely disappointing as Christians, most of all to ourselves. Also, just to, my, my wife pointed this out to me. Marsha said, this talk, this passage, you use a lot of Christian-y language. I use the word sin a lot. Sin is simply any rebellion against God. It's not just the bad things you do, you know, drink, smoke, chew, go with the girls that do. It is any rebellion against God, okay? But be patient with me in the Christian-y language, especially in the first part of the sermon. But also hear this if you are uh, investigating Christianity at some level. We're going to be talking about life change. We're going to be talking about ethics. We're going to be talking about morality. Those are very important. But that is not primarily what Christianity is about. Christianity is primarily about the good news in Jesus. It does lead to morals. But it's primarily about the good news that is in Jesus. So don't hear, do this, be better. 
hear the gospel of Jesus. So today, so today, what I want us to see that in Christ, we have a new status and a new struggle. A new status and a new struggle. Let's look first at the new status. So Paul answers the question, verse 1, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers the question by saying, verse 2, by no means. It's actually the strongest way of saying no in, the late, in, in Greek. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Our new status, your new status if you are in Christ is dead to sin. Okay, dead to sin. Now it's interesting, in these 14 verses... The word dead, died, or death occurs 13 times. The Apostle Paul does not want us to miss the point. You are dead to sin. All right? It's very on the nose. It's very to the point. But it's also a little more nuanced and glorious than that. Look with me at verse 11. He says, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, alive to God. So that is your new status if you are in Christ. Dead to sin, alive to God. You feel like that this morning? Who feels, don't raise your hand. If you, <laughs> who feels dead to sin? And who feels fully alive to God this morning? It raises several questions, does it? We won't get to all of them this week. It'll be the rest of our time this calendar year. But first of all, what does dead to sin, alive, what does it mean? Let's just start by talking about what it does not mean. A couple of ways, this, a couple of things it does not mean. The first is this. Die to sin does not mean no longer sinning. Okay? Die to sin does not mean no longer sinning. Your own experience and the Bible tells us it can't mean that. Okay? It also does not mean and does not say. Dead to sin does not say dying to sin. I think that's what we actually think when we read this. We think dead to sin actually means dying to sin. But you know what people who are dying are technically? They're technically alive. Uh, they're still alive. They may be dying, but they're still alive. But the thing, if we think that dead to sin means dying to sin, it's like saying, you know, I don't want to sin as much. I'm making my way heavenward. I'm, I'm dying to sin. That's not what it says. It says you're dead. Dead to sin. You have died past tense, in the past, not ongoing. Dead to sin. What on earth can that mean? The teaching here is building off all of Scripture and maybe even especially Romans chapter 5. That there are two realities, two kingdoms, two realms. And you're in one or the other. The kingdom of grace or the kingdom of sin. The kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of rebellion. Or to use the language of Romans 5, you are in Adam or you are in Christ. Grace and sin. To be dead to sin is to move from the kingdom of sin to the kingdom of grace. You have a new king. You have a new citizenship. You have a new passport. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's your new status. Now, let me give an analogy that might help. Imagine, as well as hoping and praying and believing that Ukraine retakes Eastern Ukraine. Let's hope and pray and believe that. Okay? Pushes the Russian out. Pushes the Russian out. Plants the Ukrainian flag in the major towns and cities of the East. Liberated at last. 
rightful rulers installed, good government working for the people, not killing the people. All right? The flag planted in the major cities. Well, throughout the countryside, though, there would be pockets of resistance to the rightful rulers. Russian uh, soldiers left behind, Russian loyalists. There would be setbacks, attempts to wreak havoc. There would be guerrilla warfare. But the outcome would be settled. And the fight would be from a status, a status of strength. You see, friends, to be dead to sin is to have planted the flag, established regime change. And different from our analogy where the results can go back and forth, this is not reversible. Dead to sin. Yes, there is guerrilla warfare. But once you are Christ, the victory is sure and secure. Dead to sin. Alive to Christ. That is our new status. That's what it means. Well, how? How are we dead to sin and alive to Christ? Read with me verses 3 to 6. We will not be able to unpack all of this. It may be best just to hear this and then to go back and read it again this afternoon. Maybe make a pencil mark as you go through here, though. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's a lot in there, okay? How have we died to sin? Christ has died and we are in him. Christ has died and we are united to him. Baptized into his death. Which is to say, if you were in Christ, the most defining moment of your life was 2,000 years ago. The most defining moment of your life was 2,000 years ago. Because his death ushers us from the realm, from one realm to another when we grab hold of him by faith, from the realm of sin to the realm of Christ and grace. And when by faith we are united to Christ, it is his death, his resurrection that defines us. We are baptized into his death. Now, baptism language. Baptism language. Baptism is a visible sign. It points to something. It is a seal that makes it real. And it points to our new status, this new reality, our invisible union with Christ in his death. It's a visible sign. Now, how is it so? When we baptize babies or when we baptize adults, we say the same thing. If you're you're watching, that's a great moment for you. Remember your baptism. Even if, like me, you were baptized as an infant, and I wasn't there, I don't have a physical memory, but we remember our baptism. Because what does every baptism contain? The washing of water and a new name. You are washed with water. Water is put on you, signifying the washing of sin. And also, in the name of the Father, I baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You are given a new name. A new status. That is what baptism is. We remember our baptism. 
And infant baptism, don't get lost. I know some of you are like, infant baptism, but whatever. Infant baptism points forward to that reality. Believing baptism points backward to that reality. They are the same reality, a new status. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. You are dead to sin. That's your status. And it happens because Jesus died and was raised. You are dead to sin because you were crucified. Think about this language. It says this. I'm quoting. You were crucified with Christ. And one day you will be resurrected with Christ. His life, his death, his obedience, his resurrection are yours. It is definitive. His story, his story is your story. His identity is your identity. So when you look at yourself in the mirror, what do you see? You should see Jesus. You are united to him. So to answer the question, why not sin, that Paul asked here in verse 1, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. I am dead to sin in Christ. Sin for the Christian is temporary insanity. It's forgetting who we are in Christ. So to make it a fundamentally, the Christian ethic is not do more, be better, be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? It is not that. The Christian ethic is be who you are in Christ, dead to sin. Now this passage is a mystery. I mean the greatest expositional preacher of the 20th century in most regards, a man named David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Somebody asked him, why have you never preached through Romans? He said, because I don't understand Romans 6. Thankfully, he finally got some idea of it, and he preached through Romans. It is a mystery. I cannot fully explain it to you. It can only be experienced. But it is also a relief. <laughs> because if you are in Christ, this is what you want. This is what your heart longs for, to be free from sin. And this text is telling you, you have it. You have a new status in Christ, dead to sin. It's like you've been pinching pennies, working so hard all your life, only to find out that you have a trust fund of unlimited value. This is such good news. You have a new status. Well, let me illustrate with a couple of true stories. If you were betting right now, you could probably guess where I'm going uh, if you listen to me regularly. The first, don't say it. Augustine, I got to you first. <laughs> I love Augustine. I love Augustine because he was converted in his early 30s from a very promiscuous lifestyle. Very promiscuous. He talks about it in his confessions. And he became a Christian age, I think it's 30 or 32. And a couple years after that, he's back in his hometown and he runs into an old flame. Somebody he knew from the bathhouses. He runs into an old flame, and this woman says to him, Augustine, it's me. And he just kind of keeps walking. And she's called, Augustine, it's me. And he, he stopped, and he looked at her, and he said, yes, but it's no longer me. Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. Now, let me make sure you understand this. Augustine still struggled with sin. I mean, in the section, I would, I'm just read, I'm rereading Augustine right now. In the section, he talks about as a bishop... His un, I'll just leave it at this, his unseemly dreams. I'll leave it at that. Okay, He writes about it very explicitly. The enslavement, though, the captivity is over, dead to sin. You can change because you have been changed. You have a new status. But second, second example, Jacob. Jacob from the first half of the fall. That deceiver, that cheat, that thief. 
He has an experience of God's grace. He does not deserve it. None of us do. But slowly, God's grace changes Jacob. And one of my favorite moments in Jacob's life is when this rascally liar who has slipped out of everything that's ever come his way, he's always escaped responsibility, he mans up. Or better yet, let me say it this, he graces up. He graces up and he comes clean to his brother about everything that he has stolen from him. He acknowledges his sin. He goes to him, puts himself at his brother's mercy. He does it in his own Jacob way, but he does it because he has been changed. And what does God do? God gives him a new name, which is what? A new status. He was dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. If you, friends, are united by faith to Christ, you are dead, not dying, dead to sin. It is your new status. And it's a status, though, that leads to a struggle. So we've seen the new status. Uh, Secondly, in verses 11 to 14, I want us to see the new struggle. Because the regime change that happens when you come to faith in Christ initiates a battle. Once you have peace with God... You have war with sin. There is a struggle. And friends, that is a good thing. If you are struggling with sin, that is the best sign imaginable because it's acknowledging the reality. That is a good thing. Because before, there's no resistance to sin. There's no struggle. You might have had some self-interest in keeping the rules. But before Christ claims us, sin was just who we were. There was no reason to struggle. There was no reason to fight. My sister-in-law, a great Bible teacher, Paige Brown, uses this illustration. She talks about uh, Britain in the 1930s. And we're talking about prime ministers in Britain these days. And in 1938, Neville Chamberlain very famously went to Munich and made nice with Hitler. And he came home, he signed the uh, Peace of Munich, the Treaty of Munich. And he says, we've got, with Hitler, right, 1938. He says, we have peace for our time. And this is the last line of that speech. Go ahead and get a good night's sleep, 1938. Can you make peace with Hitler? You cannot. You cannot make peace with sin. Not long afterwards, he was replaced by Winston Churchill. And in one of the great moments, somebody reminded me of this at a dinner party recently. Uh, he gave one of the great uh, speeches of all time. He says, we shall defend our island. He goes on and on. And the last line of that sermon, I mean, of that, it was a sermon. But the last line of that speech in the commons, maybe the great moment in the House of Commons, we shall never surrender. And my sister-in-law goes on to say, we need Churchillian Christians, not Chamberlain Christians. Struggling with sin, fighting it tooth and nail in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our finances, in our work, in our schools, everywhere, fighting with sin on every front. It is a new struggle. And we see the new struggle in the way the author writes in verses 11 to 14. Look with me at verse 11 first. The Apostle Paul writes, because you're dead to sin, it's interesting, because you're dead to sin, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Other translations have reckon yourself, reason yourself dead. There is a thinking component to this, right? Where you think about the truth. And I want to say this, when you do that, when you're you're reasoning, with, when you're considering yourself dead to sin, the best thing to do is to defocus on the sin the negative thing, and to focus on what is true, the beautiful, Jesus, the spirit, the life. What is true of you? Because actually, I find that this teaching has 
profoundly changed my life over the last 30 years. But it's because it focuses you, it, from focusing on yourself, you focus on him and his story. It takes your eyes, oh, I'm, I've fallen again, I've done it again. No, you lift your eyes. That's what's true of me, not this. Consider yourselves. Think on him. Think on Jesus. Then verse 12, a little bit more briefly, he says this, Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. I love the way the New Living Translation translates it. Let not sin control the way you live. Don't swim in sin. Don't tolerate it. Don't dabble with the Russians, okay, to use the illustration from earlier. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And then a little bit more, let's talk about verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Now, members is a reference to our bodies, okay? Our flesh and blood bodies. And it's so important, I think we sometimes forget this. We tend to, especially in, in, the, in the West, the Western civilization, we, 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 I think therefore I am Descartes. We forget our bodies. Friends, we are psychosomatic wholes, body and soul united together. And so it is insufficient to read a book. It is insufficient to listen to a sermon and think that good thoughts are enough. We must present our members not to sin, but to God, which means we must be mindful. We must be mindful of what our eyes see. It forms us. We must be mindful at what we laugh at. It must be mindful of who the company we keep. We must be even mindful of our physical location. It's formative. We must be mindful of the clubs or groups that we join. They form us. We must be mindful of what we actually put into our bodies, food and drink. We must be mindful of actually how we groom our bodies. Or maybe in America these days, the ways we over-groom our bodies. I, like, I came here from Los Angeles. They used to say in Los Angeles that you know, cosmetic surgery was just good grooming, right? It's over-grooming. Maybe the most evocative illustration of it is the Internet, social media. Maybe particularly Internet pornography. You've read the studies. I hope you have. These things, they rewire our brains, if we set our minds on these things, we will be instruments of them. We have to be mindful what we do with our actual eyes, with our actual bodies, with our actual ears, what we actually touch. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God. It is a struggle. Don't give sin dominion. Don't live there. Don't flirt there. Don't visit there. Present your body to sin, but not to sin. As instruments of unrighteousness, but to God. I mean, maybe the group of people that understand this the most and the most intuitively are the people in the addiction community. Addicts, right? Have you ever been with an addict? You may be an alcoholic and you're in a bar with an alcoholic and you say, hey, you want a sip of this? No. They know they can't dabble. They can't even have a sip. They know it. We need to realize that as well. We can't even dabble with sin. The struggle is real. One of the things that's not evident in the English is all of these, every single, every single verb here should be y'all. They're all plural. None of them are singular. It reads like you because in you know, English we're so silly. We have you means you know, plural and singular. They're all y'all. Every single one of them. Y'all. 
I know I sound extra texting today with my sickness too. Which is to say, you can't do this alone. This is designed to be heard in community and lived out in community with other people. Many of you know that I have a pastoral accountability group. We get together two, three, four times a year. We were together just two weeks ago. This is a group of three other pastors. They're my closest friends in the world. They know how much money I make. They know what's happening in my marriage. They know what is happening with my parenting. They know what tempts me most. They know what excites me. They know everything. They know where the bodies are buried. And as I do life with them, it helps me to live out my new status. Life with them makes me a better husband, a better father, a better pastor, a better person. This is for y'all. <laughs> y'all. Live this out. Find people and do life with them. But I'm going to close with maybe the best news in this whole passage. Listen, actually don't read it. Listen to me. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Amen. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Last winter, we started, I started teaching our son to snow ski. And if you're going to teach someone young to snow ski, you, you watch the videos. I grew up skiing, and so I know how to ski. You watch the videos, you read about it, you talk about it. You know, buddy, you're going to have to lean in. You know, you're going to have to trust your edges, right? Uh, you, you put them in ski school. But there's only one way to get better at snow skiing. There's only one way. To do it. To lean into your skis. To lean into the edges and find that the edges, in fact, hold. Well, last winter, we were on a bunny hill in Wisconsin. <laughs> and I mean bunny hill. And we're, my son, he's doing okay. He's struggling. You know, when you're teaching your kid to scoot, you know, you're like, sometimes you're behind, sometimes you're in front. You're, you know, and I'm behind him at this point, and he is headed towards a fence. Thankfully, it's a mesh fence, so I know this isn't going to end terribly. Uh, but he's headed towards a fence, and I'm yelling. I'm, I lean in. Trust your edges. I'm leaning. And from, I'm, I'm above him, right? And I see it. He makes the most, I mean, Lindsey Vaughn's got nothing on this turn. He makes the most beautiful turn. He leans in. I still can see it in my mind's eye. He just carves it out. I was like, ah, he did it. And he knew it. We still talk about it six months later. He leaned in. He trusted his edges, and it happened. The great thing about skiing is you can get better and better. This year I'm going to take him on bigger and bigger hills, higher and higher lifts, right? Romans 6, dead to sin, alive to God is a bit like that. You never get it. But you keep leaning in, trusting those edges, experiencing it more. Because, friends, I end with this. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Lord, be with us for Christ's sake. Amen.